Welcome to the Watts of Change podcast. I'm your host, Jen Watts, and we are live from Indianapolis. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Watts of Change podcast. I am very excited about this next episode, episode five. Um, We just completed an abortion series, um, three episodes on the abortion rights movement and what was happening here locally in Indiana. Um, We also were following legislation very closely. Um, And a lot of folks reached out and asked if I could do an episode about how a bill is actually passed at the State House. Um, You know, it's a very confusing process how a bill is introduced into the State House when it goes through the House and then the Senate. What does that mean? Um, what is what does caucusing mean? Um, what does conferencing mean? Um, it, it it can be confusing, and you know it it maybe shouldn't be this difficult in a democracy. But if you kind of analyze the processes that have been set up from the very beginning, the, the with our founding fathers and the beginning of this country, um, and what has transpired since then, um, it is a beautiful process uh, to pass legislation. Um, it's complicated. It takes experts to get the job done. And that is why I have a very great guest today. Her name is Lindsay Ships Hake. Uh, She is here in Indiana. She is a seasoned legislative expert. Um, She is a PR and a public policy expert as well. She runs her own consulting agency with clients throughout the Midwest and D.C., Lindsay grew up in Michigan. She graduated from the University of Michigan and moved to Bloomington for grad school at Indiana University. Um, And now she is committed to staying in Indiana and remaining in the Midwest and really focusing on the region. Um, I also have the honor to see Lindsay a lot in my daughter's school's parking lot and at events. Um, Her daughter and my daughter go to school together. They both go to St. Richard's. Um, So we are St. Richard's moms, go dragons. Our daughters um, are really best friends. Let's just be honest. Um, Caroline and Nora, um, little peas in a pod when they see each other. They're both beautiful, strong girls. And I love being a mother next to Lindsay. I love being an advocate next to Lindsay. Um, she really was one of the first people I called when I moved to Indiana and understood the, le- the legislative process here, what was going on. Um, so we are honored to have her today. Um, and we'll take it from here. Lindsay Haig with me today. Um, she has been working with Indiana politics and in politics generally for over 15 years um, and is sort of one of the first people I called and got to know when I moved back to Indiana um, to give me a rundown of what the state of politics were in the state at this point and the state of politics happening in the Indiana State House. Um, I'll let Lindsay introduce herself to you, but I just want to note that, you know, during you know my last episode's clearly was a very intensive series on the abortion rights fight happening here in Indiana um, to catch folks up. And I'm going to let Lindsay kind of, you know, correct me if I'm wrong here legislatively. Um, but right now, the uh, the state house has indeed voted both in the Senate and the House here in Indiana to ban abortions. Um, and I want to talk with Lindsay today. What does that mean from the a legislative viewpoint, what is the legislative reality now that the Senate and the House has banned abortions, has voted to ban abortions here in Indiana? And how does a vote like that officially become a law? Um, and so the, the purpose of this podcast is, I've got a lot of questions throughout my series, my past series, about you know how does a bill become a law? How does a bill get passed in the Indiana State House? What does it even look like um, how have we gone this long, frankly, with a supermajority, all voting down the line, um, very traditionally and in line with GOP uh, preference, power, and money? Um, how does it even happen? And I think there's a lot of listeners and a lot of people out there who don't know how a bill is passed at the state level, who've never been involved in legislative issues or advocacy issues. And so today, Lindsay, I would love for you to just, you know, one, talk about your background, 
who you are, how you got involved in politics, how you got involved in legislative advocacy, um, and give us just a short synopsis of what you see going on at the state house right now. Well, that's a lot. Thank you for having me on. I'm super geeked to talk with you and to reach a new audience. I've never done a podcast before, so uh, go easy on me. Uh, I will. (laughs) The State House is, um, you know, it doesn't matter what issue you're working on at the State House. It doesn't matter if you've worked in the State House for decades or if you've just now gotten a glimpse into lawmaking uh, as the the attack on individual liberties has now uh, concluded and the bill has passed into law. You know, it really doesn't matter if you've been doing this forever or you're new to it. There's always something new to learn. And even the most seasoned lobbyists will tell you that if you're not learning new skills or new tactics each year, legislative session that is, uh, then you you really haven't, um, you've closed your ears to the process. And there's always something new to learn. There's always a new relationship to either track or to learn to benefit the outcome of your particular issues. So uh, my ears are always open. And there's always something new to learn at the state house, and that's the positive spin on working at the legislature. I will take. Uh, there's a lot of negative sides to it as well, uh, but sometimes you just have to focus on the good and toss off the bad. Otherwise, you literally go, you drive yourself crazy. Mm, absolutely, absolutely, and I think. Thank you for sharing that. And I think, you know, what I was really impressed, so during this legislative session, um, the special session that Governor Holcomb called um, to take on numerous issues, abortion being the the flagship issue, um, you know, I, I was texting Lindsay pretty much as this was going on, asking her, you know, where is this? What's going on? Um, and so can you describe for listeners, and we're just going to, we're going to talk about abortion, I think, just given the fact that we just got off of this here in Indiana. <laughs> Lindsay has a huge sign behind her saying, keep abortion legal, which is, which is great. And I love it. Um, you know, can you, can you tell listeners who introduced this bill and how exactly did that go down? And then how did the bill go from the Senate to the House and the testimonies and everything it went into getting this bill passed? I think that's the first thing that listeners need to understand. So the bill this special session was introduced by Senator Sue Glick. And Senator Glick is out of LaGrange, Indiana. And she is seen as one of the senior leaders in the Senate GOP caucus. And it was a reassurance to me to have Senator Glick uh, stewarding this bill. I would have been worried if it had been um, an individual in the Senate that uh, traditionally had been seen more as a um, extremist. You know, that is not what Sue does. Senator Glick has always worked with both sides of the aisle on issues. And that was my hope in having this bill uh, come out of the, because I think we all knew it was going to pass, right? And so the sentiment, and this is all due, of course, to horrible public policy called gerrymandering, which essentially subverts democracy and tees up extremism and allows representatives and senators to hide behind the fact that the majority of their voters, they believe, support these extremist policies while not having to listen to a vocal minority or a very close to majority in their district. And so even if, like, and this is why you'll never see the results of the polling that the Senate GOP did internally because it was so close. It was so close. Mm. And in some districts was way heavier towards leaning to preserve the right to abortion and individual rights. And that was not talked about because folks knew the answer. And so Mm. they are essentially taking a huge risk uh, to believe that gerrymandering will protect their districts from accountability. And that's one of the really tricky parts of this. And one of what I believe will be an outcome come November um, 
as a result of these consequences of making this decision. Now, over in the House, the bill is sponsored by Representative Wendy McNamara, and she is from Evansville. And these are obviously both women, GOP, standard bearer Republicans uh, that, and I think Representative McNamara, I almost said McNamara, sorry, that's not your name, (laughs) I promise. Um, All good. (laughs) The the only wacky I remember is Wacky Jackie, who, God rest her soul, we're laying rest today up in Granger. And um, I'm still so torn up about the loss of Representative Lorsky. Um, I think Mm -hmm. everybody knows I was no big fan of her policy, but I will tell you that she was just a terrier for food and nutrition programs in a way that we needed uh, in the House of Representatives. And it will be really big shoes for anyone to fill, no matter who leads that caucus, whether for Indiana or whether for the nation. But um, th- those are really big shoes left to fill. So uh, I will yeah. miss wacky, wacky Jackie 100 uh, percent. And so will the nutrition community. Um, but back to the Indiana House, uh, you know, Representative McNamara has been on the scene at the State House for a decade now, and her work to preserve not only the exceptions in this bill, but to also limit the crazy that went into this bill, uh, I think should be noted. Now, that said, while this bill could have been way worse, I think we also have to remember that the bill is a total on-out abortion ban unless you meet these rape and incest exceptions. And that for me is really troubling because not only is it a stomping of individual liberties and rights, uh, but also a sign that given the state of Indiana's uh, negligence really in funding public health that it, and sex education, there will really be no way to, to move past this in a reasonable way uh, that puts Indiana women and Indiana girls and, and folks who can get pregnant will happen. Mm. Mm. And Lindsay, that's, that's something that I think when I first came to the state and I remember we had lots of discussions, like I, I, I mean, I, when I moved back, I had this sense of hope I mean, maybe call it naive, call it, it just was energized to be home. But I, I am absolutely floored at how, you know, I hear statements like this all the time. It's just not going to happen. It's just not going to happen. Like we're not going to get that passed, you know, um, at, or, or, you know, the, the sort of like it, the bill, the, anything we've introduced, frankly, gerrymandering, et cetera, sure. nothing is going to happen. Yep. How do, do Republicans in this state keep such a stronghold, you know, in the, in the state house, Clearly, we know we talk about gerrymandering and that they have a stronghold on all of these precincts across the state. They've had it for decades. They've had it for centuries, frankly. How do they keep that stronghold in that state house and keep everyone aligned and, and voting the same way? I think that's actually changed, especially in the past four or five years, even. Uh, the political wow. dynamic in Indiana has changed exponentially in the past decade. I mean, you know, 10 years ago, we still had a large number of, of legislators voting to preserve marriage as a man and woman. And and that obviously has completely, the, the change, of course, has come in the viewpoints of the legislature, which have been either, you know, the radical folks who are just like, stay out of my bedroom, and then, um, which is now somewhat center is to stay out of my business. Who I marry is my business and not yours. And that's now a central theme thematic point. Uh, And that was not the case in 2007, 2008, where you even had some centrist Democrats voting against these policies and HJR three. And and I think it was nine, forgive me. (laughs) This is ancient history now. Um, But you know, there were, we were lobbying Democrats on that bill as much as we were lobbying Republicans. So the way that this state has changed in the past 12, 10, 12 years, and even more so in the past four and five years, and that's only two elections ago on the Indiana House. That's one election ago on the Senate side. Um, and because um, as, we, as we learn more about our legislature, the House of Representatives is up every two years, and then the Senate every five years but not everybody is up for election at once in the Senate. 
it's 25 senators at once and then the other 25 senators. So it can be, um, they switch off. And so it can be sometimes mm. confusing about who we're holding accountable that particular year, but it's pretty easy in the house to remember that it's every two years, very much like Congress. So, um, it becomes a little bit easier on that side. And of course, uh, you got more to track because there are 100 folks in the House, 50 in the Senate. So, uh, but yeah, it has changed exponentially. I don't think we would have seen the amount of uh, interaction and frankly outrage at the congressional and state house maps that were drawn in 2020, um, or excuse me, 2021, um, when after the census was completed in 2020. And, and that was just, um, it was a moral outrage. And that continues. And folks know it's to blame for all of these fringe issues that all of a sudden uh, Indiana Republicans and their supermajority uh, wisdom believe they can shove through the legislature. And we will see what happens with that come November. I'm not anticipating uh, a huge wave, if you will, that some Democrats are predicting, uh, but it's going to be epic. And I, especially for Indiana, where traditionally we are a really poor state for turnout. And that's because Indiana has to fight, Hoosiers in this state have to fight harder for their paychecks than, say, another neighboring state. And what that means is we're working more jobs, we have lower public health investment, we have lower human service investment, and so folks are working harder to make ends meet. Our electric rates are higher than other neighboring states. All of our costs, inflation has really hit folks hard here, and especially in Indiana where folks like to say, and you'll hear this out of a lot of Republicans at the State House, that our economy is in great shape, we've got a budget surplus and all this other other shit. And meanwhile, Republicans don't have any clue that people cannot afford their basic daily human needs. And that's getting fed, feeding their kids, making sure that they have either heating or cooling in their home and a roof over their head. And these are the three top issues that Hoosier call, Hoosiers call 2-1-1 for, is I can't pay for my rent. I can't pay for my family to eat. Or another human service leverage issue on that, whether it be healthcare or some issue um, that they simply can't afford that month. And that happens every damn day. And that's the problem. So it might be cheaper to live here, but folks are having to do more to make that happen because there's not that investment in Hoosiers the way uh, that we saw in times past, uh, years past, like years of Evan Bayh and, and other centrist leaders that uh, we could really use again instead of this extremist agenda. Mm, thank you. No, thank you. I think you're absolutely right. And, you know, it's interesting, and I think just your your time being here, that you've seen a shift. And, and this is this is what I, I, I kind of laugh about with some of my colleagues and friends out in the bubbles of the East Coast and the West Coast. It's when you can get a bit of like, you know, 25% of our state house to just move a little bit to the center. That's a win for us. Yeah. That is. is a win. That's what we're up against. 100%. It's really and frustrating. Um, I think a lot of advocates who come into the state house ready to make change happen will not really understand that this will change this, this change they want to make happen sometimes takes a long ass time and that can be three, four, five, sometimes 10, 12 years of the bill being filed every year and not getting mm. a hearing for like four years. Okay. And then maybe we get a hearing. The bill still goes into the abyss to die. Uh, you know, it's, it's, it's always, you have to be ready to be capitalizing on any possible outcome and any variable that comes your way. And, things like this abortion vote is that's one of them you know this will have a lot of impact on future legislative sessions for perpetuity absolutely and that's you know and and when you said so talk to me about the actual and maybe you know i want to get into the process so yeah. when when someone is introducing a bill 
How do they even introduce that bill? Like what's the, what's the process look like every year or every other year here in Indiana? So I'm going to take this from a normal legislative session, right? I'm going to take it from that standpoint because the special session that we just experienced is totally not the norm. You know, the last mm. time we had a special session, I think was like 2017 or something. And then before that, it was 2009. And, you know, that doesn't always happen. And so Mm. when you're talking about the traditional legislative process, you as a representative or a senator get a number of bills, X number of bills that you can introduce depending on whether it's a budget year or a non-budget year. And that can be anywhere from like five bills to 15 bills. It really just depends. And by the way, this is all written out in the Senate and the House rule book. And the rule book you can find, you have to You have to dive into the legislative website. But many people have found this website recently. And so I'm eager to (laughs) capitalize on everyone's interest in their civic process. So if you go to that website, which is iga.in.gov, and you head over to the tab called session, all of the rules are in there. And there's different rules for the House and Senate, but those typically mirror each other. So you get these, um, you get these allotments for the number of bills you can file. You have a whole process that, and this is also happening in concert with the state's legislative services agency. These are the attorneys that are all the subject matter experts that will help you write the bill. And so it's not essentially like, oh, hey, this representative is literally sitting down writing code sites. Now, some do that because some are attorneys and they can handle that. Not everyone Mm -hmm. does that. And so they'll essentially send a list to LSA. Hey, I want to do this, 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 and this. And they send that to LSA usually by like December 1st. And then- Okay, so I want to pause you. Go ahead. I want to pause you. I want to pause you there because I think that's important. So if I'm elected official and I want to introduce a bill, let's say I have an idea around, I I want to talk about abortion rights. Right. I- I'm like, this is what I want in my bill. And, mm-hmm. you know, but I don't, I'm not, I'm not a legal expert. I'm not a lawyer. I, I can't essentially write that bill. I can call on a team called legislative services. Yep. Excuse me, legal services. Legislative and services agency. Yep. Legislative services agency that sits within the state house. Mm-hmm. And these are staffers that write bills yes. based on what the representatives want. Yes. Okay. And okay, so see, that, that's, that's, that's important. That all happens before the gavel even falls on the first day of session. And now that doesn't mean you can't move forward a legislative initiative in other ways. Okay. Mm. And we'll talk about the amendment process as well, I'm sure. Um, because that was also really critical to how the abortion drama played out this past uh, July and August. So I think what's important to remember is that this process is happening way before your legislators head to Indianapolis to represent you. Mm. Mm. Yeah. And that's the part that, so, so coming from everyone that's, when I'm preparing a bill as an elected official, I'm using the legislative services team. I'm, I am then also making, I assume I would be making phone calls to individuals who I think would support the bill with me. Or do I call on experts? Like, what, what's my it next move? Depends. So it completely depends on the type of legislator. Some legislators will totally be a convener, right? They'll be like, I want everybody a part of this. I, I want to include this entity and this stakeholder. And here's the constituent who brought me this issue, which is typically how bills become uh, a law, which is a constituent has brought you a problem. The constituent doesn't believe that strawberries should be sold on Sunday. We're going to outlaw strawberries being sold on Sunday. Now, that's completely hypothetical. That I don't think that shit would ever happen. I'm pretty sure that's <laughs> against the Commerce Clause. Um, but here we are. We'll uh, just use that as our example. And so they might Great. bring in you know, all the entities that would be interested in that, whether it be farmers, whether it be um, marketers of food. You know, who even knows? Um But some representatives don't do that. And some legislators just file the bill and wait for the chips to fall. And Mm. that usually brings out some interesting committee hearings. And it's usually typically the best way to get the bill moved forward is to invite your most hardened critics, uh, you know, Mm. to give 
feedback on the bill before it has a hearing and work all that shit out before the committee hearing, lest it blow up in the committee and it be a complete shit show. And the bill author is just like, hey, screw this. We're not going to do this. This is a giant nightmare. This is more drama than I wanted. Uh, I'm going to pull the bill. And so um, then that constituent is appointed. And then, yeah, so that's, it depends on the, on the legislator. <laughs> that's, my, that's my short answer. <laughs> Got it. Got it. Because that's, you know, I think that when you're working in legislative, so when you're working in the, in the Senate office, a Senate office or a co- congressional office, or you're working in D.C. in a D.C. office, you know, when your member decides they're going to take on an issue, at least, you know, at, at the congressional level and the state level, you have staffers that are going to help you do that work. Yeah. But here as a, as, a, as, a, as a state senator or as a representative, do you have a staffer to help you do that work? Like, so, do they do, do they? Yes. <laughs> and I, full disclaimer, I, I am a former legislative assistant. I worked on staff of the House Democrats. So uh, yes, you do have a staffer, but you have to remember Indiana funds its legislative staff way differently than other states. And so Mm. say, for example, in Michigan, you as a state representative have not only a chief of staff, but you also have a legislative assistant and you have every single legislative or excuse me, every single representative has that. Now here in Indiana, you will have four and five representatives sometimes sharing a legislative assistant, no chief of staff. And you're typically, Mm. and that's, typically a really tough gig for the congressperson or excuse me for the representative or for the senator because you are bearing the brunt of those constituent concerns because you are also at home in your computer in your community as a part-time legislator and that's super different also from congress where you're full-time you have a staff of 18 in the house or 50 in the senate and you've got folks dedicated to a, a basically a subject matter that they're comfortable in and they've worked in for usually decades. Uh, you don't have mm. that in the Indiana House. You don't have that in the Indiana Senate. Um, you also don't have, um, you really don't see a classic, you don't have the environment where a, a, a legislative staffer in the state house is, everyone's underworked, everyone's underpaid everyone Mm -hmm. is overtaxed. And so Mm -hmm. got more people doing, excuse me, less people doing more work. And it really creates a a tough environment for those legislative staffers. That being said, in Congress, you have committee staff dedicated on either side of the aisle to researching each of these issues that come before the, the committee. You don't have that in Indiana. There's no budget for that. There's no committee staffers. You as the LA, if your representative is a chairperson, you are doing the legwork for that. And that's Mm. more. You're not getting paid for on top of your work as a legislative assistant. What was the decision behind that? Why, why? So I'll be honest. I, I, so when I worked at the state house, I was the director of policy for the Department of Education. Again, not working for any representatives, but I worked very closely with our legislative director to prepare our legislative agenda. You know, every year, and I got to tell you. So, so you would think that as you know, the superintendent's office if a member was going to write a bill about education, I would be trying to get in touch with their legislative assistant. You'd think I'd get a call back. Like, and, and, and I, it's not that I demanded a call back. I felt bad for the guy. Like I felt bad for the legislative assistants assistants. I knew that they were underwater, but like, it was so hard for me to even influence a bill as a policy director in the department of education. Cause I couldn't even get a hold of anyone or, or they, or they, they took maybe 15 minutes to meet with me 30 minutes max um, to, to write some notes down. You know, the representative would with their staffer who writes some notes down in a half hour and that was it. That was all they were going to get briefed up on from the Department of Education. Yeah, that I mean, sounds about who, right. who, Who's decided that? Who's deciding that? I mean, it's certainly up to... I don't know. I don't know who, who put those funding. That's a question for the legislative leadership, you know, as to what their request is every year through... Uh, through their budgets. And if it were me, I would have, you know, a staffer for everyone and allow folks that opportunity. So they have literally a full-time dedicated person to answer the phone for my constituents. 
I mean, that's a yes. lot of people. And that's when you have, here's the tough shit. When it's harder times for Hoosiers, those phone calls increase exponentially. And mm. so when I was answering phones, it was right 2008, 2009, 2010. It was right as that drama that was unfolding with the two biggest states dealing with the automaker bailout. It was mm. really, really tough. And so I had just come off the trail from Michigan and I knew Indiana was one of the largest states that of, of automotive components manufacturing. And so mm. I mm. knew immediately that it was going to impact Indiana in a way that Michigan had already started to see when I was on the trail. And then in November, 2008, it essentially, when I returned back to work at the Indiana state house, and then I was like, these phone calls are going to start any minute now with people getting laid off and not getting enough work and they're going to need food and they're going to need help with rent. And those phone calls go up like crazy. So when you have mm. tough times, like we are right now with inflation, with the cost of every human need that we have, whether it's electric bills, whether it's your gas bill, what, what have you, you know, that is automatically transferring over to the shoulders of these legislative assistants by taking all of these phone calls. They are literally your direct representative and your first point of contact. And uh, that ends up being a lot to, to burden. And that's one of my questions. And, you know, we will eventually get to the next step of filing, of, go, of getting the bill. But I, I'm very curious about this process where you can influence how a bill is written yeah. or influence the legislative the legislative team on a particular wedge issue, whatever it is. Because here it is, you know, the ACLU, Planned Parenthood, and Women, um, women for Change. For change, sorry. Yep. They're all, you know, they were they were blasting this message. It was super disciplined about call your representative, call your representative, yes. email, email, email. Who's getting those calls? And is it really influencing? And does it matter to make the call? Because a lot of people feel like they're not getting heard. 100%. And so mm. there's also, it's really frustrating too, because um, sometimes you'll see when you're driving phone calls into the state house, sometimes you'll get really frustrating messages, which is the governor has turned off his phone. The governor's not answering messages right now. And the voicemail is full. Well, that happens after like 10, 10 voicemails on some people's phones. So <laughs> something tells me the system needs to be revamped uh, to make for more uh, public input. And, you know, there's yes. also the the speed of the legislative process can sometimes be used against folks organizing to get as many phone calls as they can into the state house, and that's essentially what happened on Friday night with the passage of the abortion bill. On um, it was almost a week ago now, and essentially the bill was passed at you know ten something, and by the Senate the final hurdle, if you will, and the governor had signed it by ten forty five p.m. Walked out of his office, turned the lights off, and got into his car on the way back up to the mansion. I literally watched this happen after the vote on Friday night, and I was just astounded at the speed by which this occurred. Because normally mm. you have a longer legislative process in the state house during normal legislative session, where you literally have like six seven days between the time. The governor receives the bill from Senate and, and House leaders having signed it. And then the Senate, the lieutenant governor has to sign it, has to go through all this drama. And sometimes mm. that can take days. And so when I saw this happening, I mean, I was literally standing across from the state house and I watched the governor's lights turn off and watched him walk out of the building. And I was like, all right, well, that's that. He signed it. We're out. And wow. that's how fast it happened. Um, mm. So it's super frustrating. And sometimes that process will be used against folks activating Hoosiers on the issue. That's essentially what happened on Friday. But normally, mm. normally during the legislative process, you have more time to gather those phone calls. And some representatives will take action with even just five phone calls or folks who've called or reached out or grocery store conversations or emails or what have you, some folks will, will make that decision based on two or three, sometimes less, just one-on-one -on -one conversation. So that phone call to the legislator is so critical because those are the mm. folks who are at home voting for you that you may see in the parking lot or at school or at the grocery and you're going to be held accountable in the middle of public 
in front of God and country. <laughs> and you're going to have to say, oh, I voted the way you wanted me to because you told me about it. Um, you know, and that's real. And I think that's yeah. really helpful. And so when I ask folks to make calls to the state house, that can be really, that can be fruitful with a, a realistic expectation uh, to me that is so far and few between what folks think it is. Like, oh, just call in the mm. state house. That's all you need me to do. Yes, it is. Let me let me connect you right now. The number is 317-232-9600. Let's please call right now. <laughs> you know? Yes, yes. <laughs> I have those numbers. I love it. <laughs> <laughs> I love it. Every person who's working on advocacy issues should have those numbers memorized and ready to give them at any moment in time. Of course, the dawn of social media changes all of this. And with the click of a button, you've got these amazing opportunities where you can generate phone call after phone call or email after email after email. And sometimes they even shut the state system down because they're generating so many comments, um, which is amazing. And that, that happened earlier in the legislative session in 2022. Wow. I mean, that's incredible. And so, so what you're describing, and that's, that's what people don't, I don't think get the, the operations of how the state house is working, how Washington works, you know, it is, it is truly, um, a sort of make your voice known when you can in mass as much as you can to even get heard. But frankly, you may not get heard if you don't have the capacity or the staff capacity for your representatives to hear you. So this is why what you just raised, the amplification of social media, the amplification of the media is critical because we're also trying to create an echo chamber around that representative and around their constituents beyond just the calls into their office beyond the protests at the state house. Like we also have to get on social media and make noise. We have to get the press to make noise. Um, and you know, why, how, how effective is sort of those tactics on swaying a legislator outside of the state house? Yeah. So there's typically when I develop a strategy for a client, whether that be working on like, for example, tamping down gerrymandering or whether it's a really, really niche issue that, um, that's super in the weeds. Um, this is an inside the game game, uh, the inside the state house game and outside the state house game. Those are two mm. different strategies, uh, or excuse me, two different tactics that complement the overall strategy. And, uh, the messaging changes a little bit and the nuance is different, but the end goal is all the same to levy that pressure up against, uh, whichever entity you need to, to influence. And so, and that can be done also to give a representative or a legislator cover. And that's, mm. why we really, um, I'm not sensing that my district is super on board with this might be the health chair, say, for example, uh, dealing with a pharmacy issue or pharmacy bill or something like that. And, um, you know, it'd be really helpful to have some cover on this. Maybe you could put some uh, billboards in the area to say this is an issue or something like that. You know, these are all uh, strategies to complement the outcome and uh, influence essentially the particular and the particular outcome you're, you're seeking to have. To, to occur. There's always a, a different strategy that can be employed. It is really tough yeah. to talk to folks outside the state house about really, really super nerdy policy wonky crap that no real, um, that has real no outcome for Hoosiers day to day. And sometimes you need to pass a bill like that. And that can be more mm -hmm. of an inside the state house strategy where you will <laughs> commonly see something referred to as a quote, technical correction. Probably not a technical mm. correction, uh, but that's what they <laughs> call it, and uh, that's what they choose to um, to adopt uh, to to move it forward. And then, if you're dealing with a really big issue that's that's got more public interest, then uh, you know that that will go a different route in terms of the tactics. And so, okay, so and I know we're you know I, I what I understand so. I'm, an, I'm a representative. I have decided I'm going to take on this strawberry issue. <laughs> I, I, I say I'm going to file a bill. I ask the legislative team to help me. I then realize that, you know, people want to legalize or get rid of strawberries. But I need some cover 
before I move this forward in the state house. So basically, I'm going to hire or call upon, you know, communication type experts to start creating buzz in my district about how they hate strawberries, (laughs) you know, and they find the strawberry haters and they make big billboards that say strawberries suck. Um, And so when I, so right before I, I, you know, I'm building all this buzz before I even file the bill, essentially, and as I file, to continue making sure everybody's aware that, hey, we are mad about this. You know, I am the, I'm doing right because look at my district. They hate strawberries. But yeah. there is a whole team of consultants and money behind the echo chamber and the cover, if you will, so that you can go into that state house and file feeling as confident as possible that people in your district are all talking about how much strawberries suck, which is going to yeah. make you look great and get you more votes. So... I, I go in and where do I file the strawberry sucks bill? So you go to after your legislative services agency attorney has completed your bill and whatever convening you have done, it meets their expectation. So if you've got the strawberry council, which I don't know if that's a thing. So that's I'm speaking hypothetically. I don't know. If this, <laughs> I literally don't know. This um, is all hypothetical. This is all this is all hypothetical. 100. So percent It's a fake case. If I get a call from a strawberry lobbyist, I'm gonna be pissed. <laughs> <laughs> So, um, this was and, and we like, have to worry about those things. I don't think people understand. Like, you have to kind of live your life. Like everyone's watching you and you can't say one wrong thing or you're going to hear about it. 100%. So this is uh, for the sake of all of our interested listeners on how a bill becomes a law. We are hypothetically discussing a bill that would essentially, uh, not not criminalize, we're not going to talk about criminal provisions, but it will not allow the sale of strawberries on on Sundays. (laughs) And uh, this hypothetical bill would then be filed at the clerk's office. And the House of Representatives clerk's office, this is not, sorry, this is not your Marion County clerk. This is not where you go to vote or like, this is not, this is the House of Representatives clerk's office. And so this is a entity inside the House of Representatives on the third floor where you go and you get a stamp and a bill number for your bill. Mm. Then that means it's officially filed. And you have to do that within a set time as prescribed by the House and Senate rules in the legislative session. And sometimes in short sessions, that will be like five days after the session has officially started. And in longer sessions, it can be longer than that, like maybe a week or so, uh, two weeks or so. And so after that happens, then you will see your bill populate on the state website. And if you recall, I spoke about that earlier. It's iga.in.gov. And you can head on to that website and click on session and go see your legislation. And there's a shit ton of it. And it can sometimes mm. be really fun to read, especially after a few drinks. So, um, <laughs> and I'll leave it at that. How many times, how many times have you and I texted each other just <laughs> cur- cursing after we both have their drinks when our kids are in, in bed? We have our mommy drinks. <laughs> this is actual work for me. So I will sit down and read all the bills. And this is what lobbyists will do or any advocates mm. working on an issue in the state house. You must read the bill. You, If you have not read the bills that you are charged with, with either tracking, following, or working on, like you have to read the bill and you have to read it again. And then you have to read it again and again. And this happens throughout the whole process because the bill can change as a series of events throughout the legislative process. So right before the committee hearing, the bill is going to be as introduced. Then after Mm. the committee hearing, the bill can be completely changed. And so you'll need to read it and read it and read it again. Then, Mm. and we haven't technically hit this part part in this this podcast, so I don't want to screw up your your chronology here, but then it can change again after it's been read for a second time on the House floor. And that means anybody in the House can amend it. And when anybody mm. can amend it, shit can go completely haywire. And then the bill goes for a final vote before that committee, not final, sorry. And then it goes to the other chamber where this all happens again. And so there's probably wow. like six, seven times the bill could change. And then there's also the real game changer, which is the conference committee process where all shit usually breaks loose. What is the conference committee process. What is, I'm sorry, the conference committee 
Okay. So yes. when you have a bill that has passed the House and passed the Senate, and it has been changed, the original author of the bill must agree or disagree to the changes made by the other chamber. So say, for example, House Representative uh, Wendy McNamara has offered, offered this bill, authored the bill to illegalize strawberry sales on Sunday. If the Senate made changes to her bill, she can either agree to those changes made by the Senate or disagree to the changes made by the Senate. And if she agrees to changes made, then the bill can move forward for a final vote and be sent to the governor. If she does not agree to those changes, then what happens is a conference committee process. You will have two representatives, typically the author of the bills included in those, and you'll have two, um, two Senate, either the co-sponsor of the bill or another entity that has either been closely aligned with the bill or another representative, uh, a senator, excuse me, who has been closely aligned with the bill or something similar, maybe a committee chair or someone who's been a big critic who they need on board and need to build that mm. consensus. You know, those are very strategically chosen. And so you'll have four people on this conference committee that all need to sign the conference committee report, which is the final piece of legislation to then go for another vote before the House and Senate. Then at which wow. point, it, if it moves forward, we'll go to the governor for signature. Unbelievable. And as this is all happening, remember that there is like maybe two staffers and like, there's one staffer for five representatives yeah. trying to keep track of all this. <laughs> um and so, you know, people, when people talk about when the house, when it's in session, everyone's like, okay, session starting. You, you honestly hear the anxiety of everyone. It doesn't matter who you are. It doesn't matter if you're a teacher, if you're a lobbyist, if you're an advocate, advocate, if you're a mom, if you're, if you're, you know, whatever the case is, if you're involved in the state house and it's, you're going into session, it's like this, the, the state of Indiana is, is, is an anxious wreck. Yeah. But to be honest, I find only people that are actually anxious are the people who care and are worried that there's going to be these bills passed that they don't want to be passed. The GOP and their voters are just kind of sailing by like, oh, well, here we go again. Business as usual. Yeah. Right. Like, do you feel that? It's super. Yeah. It's and here's why. It's because people, Hoosiers, who know that the legislative session is in and that automatically triggers some anxiety. They know that they are on the menu and that's mm. a problem. So if you can be regulated, you should be scared when the legislature mm. is in. And that's why as a public interest advocate, which is essentially the bulk of what my work has been doing, whether for Citizens Action Coalition or for some other entities, my work has typically been in a quiet space where no one can mess with the environment, nobody can, um, nobody can mess with with Hoosiers when the legislature is not in session. So when they come back in session, all of a sudden, I'm on the menu. Clean air's on the menu. Clean water's mm. on the menu. And I should really be saying that the other way because Indiana has some of the dirtiest ass water and air in the entire nation. Mm. So. It's really tough to work on these issues when folks are, when legislators head back to session because we automatically see and history has taught us that there is always more damage that can be done. And that's kind of like the death knell at the state house is as a public interest mm -hmm. advocate saying, oh, well, it can't possibly get any worse. Oh, hell yes, it can. It always can wow. get worse. And that's kind of where we are right now with um, any type of, uh, good government legislation, whether it comes to election policy, whether it comes to clean environment, whether it comes to living wages, uh, getting your electric rates under control, you know, they're going to do everything they can to put those folks on the menu because they know that they don't really have the ability since they're fighting just for daily lives with getting these like just the basic human necessities for your daily life after mm -hmm. having worked either two and sometimes three jobs, which we heard a lot from our teachers they were having to do, mm -hmm. which was just terrifying. Um, you know, yes. after all of that, 
they know that they don't have time to come down to the state house and rally for days on end on a bill that's going to affect their well-being. Absolutely. Absolutely. And that's where you see, and, and, and correct me if I'm wrong, when companies pay lobbyists, when company has the money to pay a lobbyist team, that essentially guarantees them that they have people in that state house or, you know, every day or every week pumping their message, meeting with representatives. That takes a lot of money and time to have someone full-time. I mean, how much do lobbyists get paid nowadays? Like what's, what's the going rate for a lobbyist? I don't even know. <laughs> I do not even know because I'm not in that, um, I'm really not in that arena. You know, I found yeah. my business because I knew that nonprofits could not afford that type of representation either at the legislature or at the, uh, in any particular type of media that's paid. Um, and so mm. my experience is focused on getting you top notch PR results via earned media, because a lot of these 501c3s and other nonprofits cannot afford to pay for p- paid media for a lobbyist. They don't have that ability. That's not what they, they're literally paying to make these programs happen. And so it's the whole reason I put my business together, which um, was to give concrete results in the state house at a reasonable price where you don't have to pay an arm and a leg. And so when you ask me what the going rate is for a lobbyist, I have no idea because that's (laughs) not what I do. Um, But when it comes down to it, you know, you will see some of these contracts go out either for a public entity or if you'll see from even a private sector entity, you will see them go out in five and six figure dollar ranges for um, for a session. Mm. And that's a lot, a long session. It's also a lot of work too, because a, a lobbyist yes. during a long session, during a budget year, it's a lot of work and getting something in the budget and getting an appropriation guaranteed. Well, I can't say guaranteed because nothing's ever guaranteed, right? Even for Fortune 500 companies, nothing is guaranteed. And so yeah. these yeah. legislative strategies for folks are um, are no guarantee, but are handsomely paid. And that's all I can offer because I've seen some of the contracts go out there, um, but it's hard ass work. And it's usually mm. a team of people who are there to make sure that your outcome is what you want it to be. Like, for example, mm. I'll use one example, and that's this past weekend during Voterama in the U.S. Senate. They were in session for almost two days straight. Um, it was, well, it was actually, it ended up being like 36 hours. But anyway, so they were all through the night, pulled an all-nighter, and pharma lobbyists were working up a storm on the uh, Inflation Reduction Act because of the provision that was kept in the bill by uh, Chuck Schumer with the the insulin and and prescription drug pricing. And so when that was kept in the bill and not removed, uh, despite the Senate parliamentarian ruling that it was like, uh, that wasn't cool to keep in reconciliation, they decided to keep it in, in a great move. Um, that was a political wonder storm that I will keep in my back pocket for next time, um, <laughs> which is just brilliant. Seriously, And uh, yes. yeah, and so those folks, those pharma lobbyists were working like 24 seven. And so it's super, super hard work. Um, but special interest money is like what the, makes the world go round over there. And so uh, public interest advocates who don't have that kind of luxury of expensive lunches and expense accounts. It's not mm. like we don't play that game. Our leverage is outside the building and it's driving those calls in, getting the emails in, shutting the system down and breaking down those barriers. Yes. Yes. Well, Lindsay, I know. And and that's actually what I really respect about you is the fact that you run your own business. You started your own consulting business on, on advocacy, on strategic communications, on legislative um, advice and, and building campaigns for change. Um, and I know you're also a mom of four. And the cool thing, and I, I didn't even mention this in the beginning, is that 
my daughter Nora and your daughter Caroline are friends and they are in the same grade at St. Richard's Episcopal School, uh, which is so wonderful. And Nora just adores Caroline. We love her. Um, And, you know, I just want to know, I have one kid and I'm trying to run my own (laughs) business and my own consulting firm on change. How the hell do you have four kids? And how old are your kids again? And how do, how do you do this? I mean, how old are they? First of all, let's start there. So Caroline, Nora's friend, is seven. And then I've got a five-year-old who's also at St. Richard's. And he's in JK. And then I've got a three-year-old who is next door at St. Nicholas. And then I've got a one-and-a-half-year-old who's also at St. Nicholas. And so we've got four under seven. And um, I'm frequently the Democrat friend who has more kids than anyone else I know. Uh, and I'm, um, <laughs> I'm fine with being that person. Um, yes. All of my kids have accompanied me to the state house at one time or another for either a hearing or there's many, um, there's many funny, uh, uh, <laughs> there's many funny scenes that I recall, including Catherine puking on me in the middle of environmental affairs. That was awesome. Uh, <laughs> so yeah, there's, oh, God. there's always a lot and it's a lot of work, but you, um, you use your, your village that you've got. And so that will change from week to week, whether it's my husband, Dan, or whether it's like another St. Richard mom, like Molly or, um, mm. you know, folks who, um, who can really help me pick up the slack. Sometimes it's Caroline's friend, Emerson, whose mom also works in this arena and uh, mm. also is a lobbyist in, in working in these issues in the state house for a long time. And sometimes they just, they're like, Oh, I don't have a committee today. Sure. I can pick up Caroline last minute. No problem. Um, you know, that's, that's just awesome. really, that's, it's been amazing being in the state house and really, seeing folks come to your aid if you need it, who Republican, Democrat, uh, friend or foe. Mm. Um, my friend Lisa, who was a Duke Energy lobbyist for a long time, held Caroline when I testified on one of the bills she was also working on that we were complete opposite sides on um, when mm. Caroline was still a baby. And you know that is a memory that both of us still treasure to this day. That's amazing. That's amazing. And I love that. And you know, I'm here for you as well. I, you know, I want to help as much as I can and hang out with Caroline and take her to the pool. Um, you know, I'm a single mom, but like I, I'm 50-50 custody. So I have a lot of flexibility, but also like, hell yeah, I rely on that that village as well. Like I feel Absolutely. so lucky, you know, to have you and to have the St. Richard's families and this community that we have. And I got to be honest, as much as we, we we shit talk and we're frustrated with the Indiana <laughs> politics, what's amazing about living here is everyone chips in. Like everyone helps each other, no matter party. And there is this sort of like Midwest village that there's, that's why I left D.C., I was like, oh, you know, Jen, why are you, you're leaving D.C.? You're going to one of the most reddest states in our country. What's that about? I was like, well, there's a village there. Like I can't explain it. Like people work really well together. I don't know if people are complacent in many ways. I don't think that's it. But I think it's sometimes people like people's people who just they're so nice. It's a mindset. It prevents them. It's totally yes. mindset where you're like, okay, well, I mean, what other choice do we have? Either it's going to be, it's either going to happen this way and it's going to be a shit show. Or it's, it can ha- be helped by one more person lending a hand. And to be honest with you, I see that a lot. And at the state house, especially, you you might have a sworn enemy on one issue. I swear this abortion issue has been really tough because it's brought out some of the, um, it's brought out a lot of op- polar opposites that have just further polarized. And during legislative session, you have more issues you're working on instead of special session where you're dominated with this one issue you were tasked with doing, which was inflation, but ended up being a portion. Um, and so when you're in a, in a leg- traditional legislative session, you've got so many more issues. And so you can be the complete opposite on one issue. Mm. And then the next second, the next bill you're dealing with, you are friends on this issue and you have to chalk mm. it up to Hoosier pragmatism and shutting up and 
towing that line so you can get something good passed. And then you can go back to hating each other in five minutes when you're working on another issue you don't agree on. But you have to be friends on the next thing or your shit won't get passed because this just happens to be one issue that you and this Republican or you and this progressive Democrat have like have, have somehow found a way to agree on. And you're like, oh, yes. okay, we can do this. Let's do this. And like, we may not agree on this issue and be fighting like cats and dogs, but we're going to get this bill passed and we're going to go to the bill signing together. And the governor's going to be like, oh, I'm so glad y'all worked on this. And you're just looking at each other like, mm-hmm. We did it. <laughs> we did it. <laughs> Amen. No, you're so right. I mean, I can't tell, like, you know, as much as I, I, you know, I've worked in the international diplomacy realm, but I have to tell you, I never had to be more of a diplomat than I have to be when I'm here in Indiana. I mean, you cannot, and believe me, my New Yorker, you know, attitude that I always chalk up to when I went to college comes out sometimes. I get aggressive, but I, I you can't, you can't run like that here. You no. have to build bridges or you're going to get zero done. But people will ice you out real quick if you're a mean <laughs> person here. And I love that. That is true. <laughs> that is true. Um, it has been, you know, it's been, you know, th- especially being, a, having a kid at St. Richard's too, is just an experience because you have such a wealth of folks who send their kids to St. Richard's. I mean, you have folks who have, I mean, you have Doris Pryor sends her kids there, right? She was just confirmed by the Senate. You yes. know, I mean, like, this is a big deal, this woman. And like, yes. I saw her in the hallway this morning. I'm like, good morning. Good morning. <laughs> what do I call you? You're a judge now. Holy shit. Like, Todd Young voted for you. And like, I have to respect that. Like, I, like, that's yes. that means so much to me. Like, all like our elected senators supported her and she is a St. Richard's mom and she was a Marion <laughs> County judge, you know, and deciding shit that affects you and me and our neighbors. And I, I mean, that was just really cool to me. And then you yes. have folks like me and Dan are just doing this business in the neighborhood, working on shit in our own backyard. And like, <laughs> it, it was just, it's really cool to see. And so you have such a, an amazing um, background there and you also have to be careful because, you know, you have these like, come to work, come to a classroom, tell us about your work with your kids. And I have to be careful because we work on a lot of issues at the state house that aren't necessarily the most popular, you know, because these are, um, (laughs) these are in the weeds issues that don't necessarily translate to the everyday Hoosier. And these are one of those niche issues, right? That, um, mm-hmm. that mean dollars and cents to folks, but they don't really realize it. And so when we're talking mm. something nerdy like energy efficiency and shit like that, and I talk about that at my kid's school and they're like, hey, what does your mom do? And I'm like, well, I talked to the governor and his leaders <laughs> about energy efficiency, knowing that one of the kids' parents works in the effing governor's office, <laughs> you know? Yes. So I need to be careful. Um, you know, there are always eyes watching and, um, you know, you try to present it in, in the most balanced way you can for your kids so they can make their own decisions. And, uh, people ask me about that a lot of times and I I let my kids do what they want. I don't tell them to fall in line on any issue. Um, I think it's really important that they develop those thoughts through their own academic process, whether that's Mm. at school with their friends like Nora and Emerson and others, or if it's through careful guidance with, um, with showing how it can be phrased by either you or your, your spouse or what have you. So it's, it's a really interesting process that that's the whole reason I sent my kids to St. Richard's was because, um, they're involved in, in creating a global citizen. And that means a lot to me. Mm. Yeah. 100%. I agree with you completely. I love the school. I love the parents and, you know, the power that the, like our PTA, our PTO is like so powerful. Like if all of us are organizing together, I can't imagine we could accomplish at the state house, state house together. Um, but yeah, it's, it's, you're right. I think the thing about being back in Indiana and working at the state level, because some of my listeners, I think work nationally and they work in Washington it is, you are on all the time and you are representing issues all the time. And, 
and and you can get a lot of things done in a in a St. Richard's parking lot. Um, and that's the cool thing about it is that the speed at which you can get things done because it's smaller is wonderful. That being said, I do feel like sometimes there's more work because we don't have the resources and we have to keep churning and burning quickly. Um, and, and if you're not paying attention to legislative issues at the state level, you will miss one in the blink of an eye or in the night. Like, what? That just passed? You have to keep a pulse on things so much quicker than you do in Washington. It's true. Um, it's right. And it's like, I mean, people don't really, I mean, you mean, you're like, it, it, for me, it's more action, which I appreciate in many ways. Um, but it's definitely, it's it can be exhausting when you're working day to day with low resources trying to get these bills passed. And on top of that, having four kids, uh, <laughs> which, and building your village around it. So, I mean, I well, Lindsay, I know it's hard. Sorry, go ahead. No, I'm sorry. I didn't mean to step on you. But you know how it is sometimes where you're just like, oh, I got to get this shit done. And, and that sound that you just heard was a reminder that I have to go pick up my kids soon. And so... Uh, <laughs> yes. I was like, oh, shit, it's time to go. It's kid pickup time. Uh, well, no. So we had... This is... It's all good. I feel like this is the beginning of many episodes that I want to have with you. You are sort of my go-to legislative expert here in Indiana and also, frankly, nationally. I know you're following everything. So I, I just want to personally say thank you so much for what you're doing and the business you, you've launched, being a consultant and all the work you've put into Indiana. Like I, I just want to personally thank you. I don't think you hear it enough, maybe. Um, I see what you're doing. I see you as a bomb. And anything I can do to help you and support Support you is all I want to do, um, and I think I think we're the future generation. Uh, we're the future leaders of this. I mean, we are the leaders now, but we are going to keep working together. And so I'm just honored to have met you and have you part of my village. And I love your family. So you know, thanks again, Lindsay, for coming on, and we will definitely hear from you again. Thank you so much for having me. And our girls, our girls are the next leaders. Man, it's our time to pass that torch is here. Amen to that. Amen to that. And, and there is a pretty, there's a, a picture I think that's going to go down in history of Caroline and Nora playing uh, Old Maid, <laughs> the card game Old Maid in front of the state house during the abortion rights protest. It was classic. So I'm going to frame that and keep that forever. <laughs> girls are going to girls. Yep. I'm yes, done with that. That's right. All right, Lindsay. Well, thank you so much for joining us uh, this afternoon. Keep up the fight. Um, and we will we will keep pulsing you when another issue uh, is brought up that I'm sure we'll be fighting for in the state house. I am here with you and for you. Thank you. I'll talk to you soon. 